Day 52 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Say hello to my new favorite mug. It says, did you check your heart today? Same thing as my sweatshirt here. So this is a new part of some potential merch that might be coming out. So if you would love to get your hands on a Heart Dive mug or a Heart Dive sweatshirt, raise your hand in the comments below or let us know, yes, that is one of the tents that I would like to purchase. Reference to the tents, of course, if you are friends with Paul from the New Testament, but this is a Holly design. So this will definitely help to support her as well for the hard work that she is putting in here at Heart Dive. So that is coming soon to shop.heartdive.org. So stay tuned for that. We will be making an announcement whenever that is all settled and ready to go. But otherwise, welcome back to Bible Study, friends. We are so glad that you are here. If you are happy to be in the Word of God this morning, could you hit that like button letting us know that you are ready to dig into the book of Leviticus? We are almost done, you guys. Tomorrow is our last day reading through this book. How was it? Not so bad, right? I know a lot of people dread having to read through Leviticus, maybe don't even like it. It goes over their head or they have a hard time with some of the content. But can you see God's heart in it now that we've read through it? Has it started to make sense a little bit more? I hope so. Now, if you're new here to this Bible study, we welcome you. Let us know where you are in the world, where you're watching from. Also, make sure to check out the show notes or description box if you have any questions. You can also go to our website, heartdive.org. We have an FAQ section, Frequently Asked Questions. We have a recommendations page with my Bible and all the things that I love, some of my favorite Bible study supplies, all kinds of things you can access there. So make sure to check that out. Speaking of my Bible, we are reading from the ESV by Crossway translation today. So before we get into the word, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day. Thank you, Lord, that we get to come freely to you, to your throne room of grace. We get to come boldly, Lord, but we also come with a heart that is humble before you. It has a healthy fear of your holy name and your goodness and your mercy and your kindness and your grace. We are so grateful for it today, Lord. We're so thankful that we get a new start, a fresh start. Every time we wake up and we breathe a breath of air, we know that it is a new day that you've given to us as a gift. And so I just pray that we will steward that well. I pray that we see the gift for what it is that you were given giving us another chance to continue in our purpose and in our calling, Lord, because until the day that you take us home, we are still here for a purpose. And so I just pray that you will light us up on the inside, Lord, that we will be able to be that light to the world and the salt of the earth. Forgive us of our sins. I just pray that you please show us where we have erred. Help us also to forgive others who may have hurt us or who may have disappointed us. And I pray that we will be able to set them free today. We love you so much. We thank you for this time with you and with everyone who is here. We're grateful for this family. Lord, you have given it to us as a gift of fellowship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off yesterday with learning about the seven feasts, and today we will continue with some of the regulations that the Lord is putting into place here in chapter 24. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from the evening to the morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamp on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. So this would be two times a day that the high priest would have to go into the tabernacle to make sure that the menorah, the lampstand is lit, has not burnt out. 
So we see a God of order here. Now, while Aaron had the responsibility to keep the candles burning, there would be no light without the oil. And guess who brings the oil? The people. So this tells me that if we as the people of the church are not bringing the oil, the lights are going to be real dim. Imagine walking into a church full of crabby, stuck up, cynical people. I don't care how good the preacher is. The light is going to be snuffed out because that oil or the spirit is lacking in the people. So we have a major role to play in the health of the church. And we aren't just speaking about what happens between the four walls of the corporate church. We are talking about the body of Christ in general, and whether we are truly being a light to the world. So heart check, are you bringing the oil to light up the church or are you snuffing out the light? Verse five, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Remember the 12 loaves is one for each tribe. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So the people also bring the bread to be able to feed the ministers. And this foreshadows the Lord's Supper and also the unity of the church in the bringing of the fresh bread. Also, if we look at the bread in the spiritual sense, can look to communion in the fact that God wants a fresh continuous relationship with his people still today. Verse 10, now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, so this would be half Jew, half Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilometh, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed. Why out of the camp? It's because they are now cut off from the people so that his death would not defile the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. And this would be a symbol of them being a witness to this blasphemy. And so they are putting their hands on his head saying, you are responsible for this sin and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner, as well as the native. When he blasphemes, blasphemes, the name shall be put to death. So notice this applies to all, both the people of Israel and the sojourner or the foreigner. And stoning would be a public event and it would involve the very people who were accusing them of this blasphemy. And remember that whenever someone was accusing someone and willing to pick up that stone to accuse them, they are also being held responsible for this accusation because if they are found to be wrong in this accusation, they then would be stoned to death. So this was a grave warning to all the people who lived within Israel. And the narrative of this fight actually shows up right in the middle of the outline of all of these responsibilities and can kind of seem a little bit out of place, maybe even jolting your spirit a little like, wait a minute, what are we reading? But I don't doubt for a second why God would do this. Sometimes he needs to poke us in the rib to get our attention and no better subject to do that with than the one that surrounds the protection of his name. So why does he take his name so seriously? Well, remember, his name is not just a mere title. 
It is the very essence of his entire being. It is his character. It is his nature. He is his name. So when a person blasphemes his name, they are essentially cursing God himself. But I believe that God is more concerned about how this kills his reputation in the mind of others to where they won't turn their lives over to him. So there is a death taking place, which is why God is deadly serious about this. And this morning, whenever I read this, I had a realization about my daddy who I lost last year. And for those of you who are with us, you kind of know this story about how I was always so concerned about his salvation because of the many times that he would fall away from God and even curse God in a sense. But this morning I realized that my daddy was the one who never allowed me to misuse the name of God. And whenever I thought about it, I realized that it was because of him who instilled that within me to respect the name of God, that I had such a strong respect and love for my heavenly father. And I just wept this morning. And I said, I'm so sorry, daddy, for never giving you that credit, for giving me such a wonderful faith in God. And I just thanked him and I prayed and I asked the Lord that it was credited to him as righteousness because it is because of him that I am doing this today. So you just never know the impact that you will have on your children, no matter what you have ever done wrong in your life. Every act of righteousness counts in the eyes of God, and I truly believe that today. So, heart check. How do you treat His holy name? Are you able to connect His name with His being? Okay, sorry. I thought my tears were done. Verse 17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. So there again, God cares for both humans and animals. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded. Now remember that this principle, this eye for an eye principle was not intended to say, if you take my eye, I'm going to take out your eye. The purpose of this was so that people would not take vengeance to an extreme. So for instance, you gouge out my eye, I am now going to gouge out both of your eyes. So it was intended to be able to protect the one who may have inflicted any sort of injury or harm. And this code was meant for judges. It was not meant for the people and their own personal vengeance, because remember, God said, says, vengeance is mine. He was not calling for people to go and take vengeance on other people. So this was intended for those who were sentencing others as judges, and therefore the punishment would fit the crime. Chapter 25. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, you shall sow your field and for six years, you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. Can you believe that? Can you imagine if every seven years, the Lord would said, Take a year off. You guys just go ahead and rest for this year. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you. So they would be able to harvest what they needed for daily provisions. 
but that was all that they could take for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yield shall be for food. So this would act as a reminder that the land belongs to God. It does not belong to the people. And what's interesting is that for those Jews who still practice the law of the Lord, they have found ways around the Sabbath, apparently, by either selling their land in the seventh year to a Gentile, and then they continue to work in the land. And they say, well, the land isn't technically ours, so therefore we can work in the seventh year. And then they will buy back the land at the end of the seventh year. And so then the Gentile makes a little bit of money, but they are able to still reap the harvest of that seventh year. But also what they will do is they will not work one portion of the land. So they will only work six sevenths of the land throughout the years, and they will rotate those different parts of the land. So at the end of seven years, they will say, oh, the land was able to rest for an entire year just in portions throughout that seven years. I don't know how God looks at that. I'm just letting you know that that is something that takes place. And I thought it was interesting because I feel like we do that sometimes with the word. We'll be like, well, technically, so we can't be judgy about it. Verse eight, the year of Jubilee. So this word Jubilee is a transliteration from the Hebrew word that actually will translate to ram's horn. Verse eight, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times, seven years. So this meaning 50 years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. And then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. By the way, this proclaim liberty throughout the land, that phrase is actually written on the Liberty Bell in Washington. So the whole purpose of this year of Jubilee was to be able to cancel all the debts, set the slaves free and give the land back to its original owners. It shall be a Jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The 50th year shall be a Jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. Now, if we think about it, if the seventh year is a Sabbath year, this 50th year would be a second Sabbath year in a row. Now, there is no record actually in the Bible of them ever sticking to this year of Jubilee. It was never actually observed. And we will see the consequence that the people face in Second Chronicles chapter 36 when the people end up living 70 years in captivity for the 490 years that they spent never observing a year of Jubilee. Verse 12, for it is a Jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price for it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God for I am the Lord, your God. The further you are from the Jubilee, the more valuable the land is, but the closer you get to Jubilee, the less valuable the land becomes. And we can look at this spiritually as in the closer we get to Jubilee, our Jubilee, our heaven, the less valuable the things of this land become. 
Um, Now, some people would look at this and say, isn't this socialism? Well, it's not socialism because it's only a redistribution of the land. So it's not a governmental oversight of all of the economy. And it would help to protect against permanent poverty. So this was a wonderful thing to be implemented if they actually ever did, because it would reset the economy and it would work really well for agriculture and populations that didn't grow so much throughout the years. So again, wrapping it up, the purpose of Jubilee was for freedom, for rest, and for restoration. And while we don't have a jubilee in our society, we can still apply this spiritually. We may not have physical slaves, but some of us are holding people captive in our hearts and in our minds, people who have hurt us or disappointed us like we just prayed about. So in a sense, we are actually the slaves in allowing them to continue to hurt us by keeping them there in our minds. So this is the day of jubilee. Forgive them. Let them go, because this will actually set you free. And we can also experience Jubilee whenever we stop trying to earn our way into heaven by working and working and working and simply rest in Jesus, knowing that He is our kinsman redeemer and that our land awaits us. And lastly, we can experience Jubilee whenever we allow the Holy Spirit to do restorative work in our lives, but that takes surrender. We have to let go of what does not belong to us in the first place. Our lives are His just the way that the land was His. So heart check. Are you living in Jubilee? What do you need to release in order to do so? Verse 18, therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. So if you do this, you are actually going to be blessed more than if you would continue to work. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So God was providing provision because, of course, once you start working the land again, it needs time to be able to be tilled, to plant the seeds, to be nourished, and then to break forth and actually bear fruit. So their obedience would be the very thing that would allow for the safety and the protection of both their land and their people. And I believe that is the same for us today. When we obey God, when we stay within the boundaries, boundaries that He has created for us, we are going to ultimately keep ourselves safe and protected and be blessed. Verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Now, why would there be a need for the redemption of the land in the first place? Well, some people would have to sell off their land due to illness of not being able to work it, or they may have fallen into some sort of misfortune or debt. And so they would have to sell their land and they would ultimately become slaves on that land to the land owner. But even though they're selling it, again, it belongs to God. And so there was never a permanent selling of the land. It was more like a leasehold until the year of Jubilee when it would be returned back to the rightful owner. So just as the Lord is declaring that the land belongs to him and that they are just sojourners, so it is with our lives here on earth. We are just sojourners. We're just passing through on our way to the promised land. But we treat this life as if it is all we have. And sometimes that means we stress ourselves out 
out in the way that we try to control everything in it. And this is why Jesus came to proclaim liberty. He came to cancel our debt of sin and to set us free from the slavery of that sin and to give us back to God as the rightful owner of our lives. But until we accept His sacrifice as our own, we will be holding on to all of that debt and worry. So, heart check. How tightly are you holding on to this life as your own? Are you living free as a sojourner or under a stack of debt and worry? Now, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come back and redeem what his brother has sold. So this is what is known as a goel or kinsman redeemer. It was usually the nearest male relative, and Boaz was the kinsman redeemer for Naomi, who we will read about later on. So he bought her field, and Goel served three different purposes. They could either redeem family members out of slavery, they could redeem land, or they could avenge the murder of a family member. Now, if we look at this spiritually, this points to Jesus as our kinsman redeemer, as I was just saying earlier. Why? Because he has bought us back from the slavery of sin. He is coming back to take over the earth that has been leased to Satan, and he is avenging for the murder of our lives. Because the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so he is once and for all going to avenge for all of those lives that Satan has once taken. Verse 26, if a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to a man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. So someone could buy back their own land, but if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. Now, if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, so this would have been more like an urban city, the larger cities, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. So why the difference in the these walled cities. Well, basically because in these cities, the homes of the people were not part of their survival. Whereas people who lived in rural areas, their home was all they had. But within the walled cities, there was so much economic diversity. They were able to find work through other means and not just agriculture. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities that they possess. So this was the exception to the rule within the walled cities. The Levites would be able to take back their home at any time because this was all they had. Levites were never given a portion of the land. These homes were the only thing that they had. And if one of their Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of the pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. So the whole purpose of this giving back of the land, this redistribution, was so that there would be a balance in the social order once again. It's that reset. 
it was a chance for the poor to be able to get back on their feet. So there wouldn't be like this constant poverty within the nation of Israel. Verse 35, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So their mercy and their generosity should always trump their greed or desire to profit. They cannot profit off the poor. And the same goes for us. Our mercy and our generosity should always outclass our desire for profit and greed. And while we cannot eliminate poverty by ourselves, we should be able to at least meet a need whenever we see it and we are able to. We're not to put our family in jeopardy trying to meet a need, but if you are able to and you see the need, we should be the ones as the church to meet them. And of course, that requires discernment because sometimes you can look at something that on the outside looks like a need, but you're going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit within you to decide whether or not there actually is a need there or if that person is actually trying to exploit those who might be a little bit richer than them. Verse 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you and he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly." Now, just a reminder here, this is not the Bible condoning slavery, but it is simply recognizing it and regulating it. And notice that the big thing here is that they shall never be mistreated. If anything, slaves were looked at as hired employees within the home. Verse 47, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to a stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold... He may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. So this is the Goel. One of the jobs of him was to redeem the slaves who may have been sold. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. So this tells me that slaves were able to make a living for themselves. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption, some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, 
He shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by those means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So he's reminding them in the end here that not only the land belongs to him and therefore they need to steward it well, but the people also belong to him. And therefore you need to treat the people as if they belong to God. So let's take a look at some of our deep dive questions. Do you see any parallels between biblical laws and modern laws? How does the showbread parallel communion and or represent our relationship with God? How might the eye for an eye principle be translated today? Could Jubilee or the Sabbath year be beneficial in modern day society? What would that look like realistically? And how do these commands reflect the heartbeat of God? So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this lasting reminder that you so desire for us to live in freedom and rest and restoration. I pray that we can get this into our spirits today so that we can stop trying to earn our way to Jubilee. You've already blown the trumpet for us to simply rest in the blessing that you're pouring out. So help us to hear it, God. Help us to see it. Help us to receive it with gratitude. And for any of us who may be holding anyone captive in our hearts or minds, I pray that you will help us to forgive and to let them go. For we know that the longer we hold them captive, the longer we allow that hurt to fester and to eat away at our ability to grow. We're holding ourselves captive whenever we do this. So I pray that you will give them the strength to be set free today. We recognize that the earth and everything in it belongs to you. And as we sojourn through this life, I pray that we allow you, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, to cancel out the debt and worry in our lives. You've already paid the price for our sin so we can live freely as we look forward to coming to our real home in heaven. So until then, help us to let go of what doesn't belong to us. We wanna surrender our lives to you, fully trusting in you as our provider and our protector. From the happenings in our families to the climate of the world, you, God, are in control. So I pray that we will release the anxiety that may be filling our hearts and taking up the real estate where contentment and peace should be dwelling. Help us also to be a light that continually burns, reflecting the light of the world that dwells in our hearts. I pray that there will be a constant supply of oil, not just within us, but flowing out into the world. We are the ones who are to bring the oil. And sometimes we rely on the pastor or the minister to light it up, but we ultimately carry that responsibility. So I pray that you will fill our lamps today so that we have a fresh supply to offer the church. I pray that we never snuff out the light with our own bitterness and jealousy or anger or cynicism. May we be a people who are always looking for ways to lift others up. The purpose of all of this is to ultimately make your name great. So forgive us if we have ever blasphemed your name or your character in the way that we have misrepresented you. Help us to always bring you glory in the words that we speak, in the way that we love, and the path on which we walk. So we thank you again, Jesus, for setting us free from legalism. But I pray that we never look at it as an opportunity to live so liberally that we forget our responsibility. We're grateful for this reminder today. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. 
None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us, and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive Him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing, and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die. But I don't want to live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer. And I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that He died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.